and welcome to the College of Nursing and Health Sciences at Flinders University. This is a podcast series hosted by myself. I'm Professor Joanna Chuli, the Dean of Research here in the College and the theme lead for Methodological Innovations in the Caring Futures Institute. Uh, today I am here with Nina, lovely Nina from our college, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet, the Ghana people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'm going to hand over to Nina to introduce herself. Thank you so much, Joe. So, Buddhas uh, Buddhas, which is in my language, the Sami language, uh, meaning hello, good afternoon. So my name's Nina Sievertsen and I'm a nurse, an educator and a First Nations Sami woman from the northern Norway where I've seen the snow melt and return many times outside my window. I live and work here on Ghana lands in Adelaide, Australia as a registered nurse, a lecturer and a researcher with the college here at Flinders University. My great-grandmother, she was a midwife in the Arctic and for more than 200 years, um, the Norwegian government implemented a forced assimilation policy. So she, like many others, were forced to hide their aboriginality to access education and job. In the end, she practiced as a midwife for more than 50 years and through two world wars along the coastline and the mountainous tundra of the north. She had the ability to blend two worlds and provided woman-centered care whilst incorporation of traditional Sami practices and medicine and still making the most of Western science. She influenced a long line of strong women in my family and all my mothers and aunties inspire me to raise my children in exactly the same way, in a strong spirit to be strong women with warm hearts. Because of her, I became a nurse. As a nurse and educator here at Flinders, I work together with Indigenous health professionals from around the world to integrate and improve healthcare and health outcomes for all Indigenous people. So um, my life changed when I experienced nursing in a remote Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory. There I learned to understand more about kinship traditions, networks, beliefs and heritage of Australian Aboriginal populations. And I could see many links to my mob back home in the Arctic. A strong part of nursing practice is definitely working to reduce health inequities and working within Aboriginal health highlighted shortcomings in the health system. And that was what led me to do research. My work has made uh, me acutely aware of the impact that system failure has on health outcomes and the improvements that are needed in Australia and elsewhere, such as training of culturally safe nurses and midwives, both under the Northern Lights and the Southern Stars. So that's how I came to work here in Adelaide. Thank you, Nina. That's such a lovely story and so interesting. It's lovely to hear a little bit about your background and your, your journey to, to working with us here. So I was going to, to ask about Indigenous ways of thinking and researching. And here your input is so valuable because um, I guess the term inter-Indigenous ways of thinking and researching applies because you have experienced uh, the ways of the Arctic as well as some of the ways here in, uh, in Australia. You said that you started off in Central Australia and now you're mm. on Ghana land. So... From your perspective, what are some Indigenous ways of thinking and research? Um, 
Personally, I think that um, Aboriginal people across the world, they have this bond between them that is very unique because of uh, shared history, experiences with colonization, experiences with reclaiming some of that. So in like decolonization of practice and life. Um, and for me, it's been extremely valuable uh, and, and educational to, to visit Australia. And originally I was just supposed to stay for one year. It's been 15 <laughs> and, uh, and still counting. And I'm learning every day learning things that I can share with family back home, with health educators uh, and other academics back home, collaborating across boundaries with um, colleagues in Canada, in New Zealand. Um, it's been an amazing sort of journey and I guess experience to see that, you know, there are so many things we can um, learn and share from each other. One of those things is, of course, um, since 2017, we've We've heard lots about the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart here in Australia and some of the things that Aboriginal people in Australia are asking for are things like a treaty to get acknowledged, um, to have a voice to Parliament to be heard. And all of those things we've actually gained in Norway. So I mentioned our strong assimilation policies. Most people, when they hear I'm from Norway, they think about, oh, wonderful social system, very progressive. But what not many people know is that in the northern parts of Norway, we have indigenous peoples that have been less fortunate and have had strong, as in Australia, there was a stolen generations, there was a similar situation in Norway. Um, so Norway and Canada was very similar in the sense that the government established residential schooling systems and Sami children were forced to undergo Norwegianization in those schools. Now, when people hear Norway, like I said, they, they, they tend to think about all the wonderful things about Norway, like free education and free healthcare, and, and that is absolutely true. But what's not so much talked about is the consequences of those assimilation policies that, in fact, were in place until 1988. But so what, quite quite recent, very and, recent and in living people's memories. Absolutely, and the generational trauma that is associated with that really significant. Absolutely, and that's where I saw so many similarities between um, first peoples in Australia and and my mob back home because this colonization has just brought about a lot of um, similar societal problems. And um, I guess what the government in Norway has done differently is that they've done a full 180 and been extremely supportive of how can we rebuild the situation. And one of the first things they provided or offered was a voice to parliament. So Sami, the Sami parliament actually was established uh, alongside the Norwegian parliament um, not legislatively, but to have an input in anything, any issues um, that revolved around Sami people. Sami people need to have a voice in that. Well, thank you for letting us know about Nino. Mm. So uh, it does sound like um, there has been a little bit more progress there, at least, as you say, in terms of the, the voice to parliament. So, but I'm sure there are still some challenges. And, and what would you say are some of the biggest um, issues in health research? concerning the traditional owners of the Arctic? At the moment, we see uh, climate changes affect uh, Sami people immensely. 
we can see that um, so so Sami people have uh, traditionally live of, of fishing and reindeer herding. Now reindeer they eat they dig through the snow and they eat um, what I don't know what's called in English but something growing uh, deep down there in amongst the grass. Tell us the traditional name for this. Love. Okay. Love. Yeah. They and they eat that. But of course, with the climate changes that have been, it means that it's so warm and then it freezes over. So there's a constant layer of ice that the reindeer can't dig down and eat, mm. for example. So um, at the moment, research-wise, what's happening in Norway is, I mean, we have brilliant Sami researchers taking control of Sami research and um, really being empowered to see, okay, what's the community needing us to explore and what changes can that bring about? So things like uh, fisheries, climate, uh, things like mental health issues and addiction, particularly amongst young people. Things like empowerment because, um, I mean, Sami people are indigenous but they're not black. So that was part of why the, the assimilation policy was immensely successful in Norway because people, they could then fly under the radar, if you wish. So if you couldn't get a, a place to live or, or a job, then you could change your whole life. So, um, yeah, part of those things are being explored today and we see lots of changes. Like we talked about earlier, um, the, the Sami nursing education that now will start in January because of a lot of passionate researchers and educators that saw, okay, there's a need for Sami research, Sami education in Sami language on Sami lands. So mm. tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about that and your involvement in that and the, the sorts of specific needs and, and health issues that are going to be addressed in a different way as a result of that program. Yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, yes, Norway is progressive in, in some senses uh, when it comes to indigenous health and, and, and systems. However, uh, things that are more developed here are things like cultural safety is more readily accepted. And we saw that in 2018 in the nursing standards that cultural safety has been implemented here in Australia and any nurse need to demonstrate knowledge in this area in order to provide the best care for Aboriginal um, clients or patients. In Norway, we're not that good. So cultural safety is something that is slowly um, but just recently evolving. Um, and it was clear to us that um, nurses, for example, in Norway didn't need to demonstrate any knowledge around Sami culture or history or bring that into practice at all. So with colleagues at the Arctic University in Tromsø, we have, uh, by the help of three PhD students, mapped out at the moment all the uh, nursing educational institutions in Norway, had a look at what uh, Sami traditions, culture, do they bring into um, practice or care? We've also looked at uh, nurses out there in practice currently today. How do they work with Sami patients? And bear in mind that Sami language is not, not mutually understood um, by Norwegians, so it's, it's, it creates a lot of practical um, difficulties in practice, particularly with the older generations and dementia, people reverting back to their mother tongues after maybe have hidden it for their whole life due to shame. So that is sort of the background of then looking to Australia and New Zealand to see, well, cultural safety is really important in nursing practice and how can we improve care? I mean, there were examples of people calling 
to the emergency um, services and asking for help. And the, the emergency responder were like, well, what, what's wrong? What can I help? And the person on the line was saying, you have to come. You have to come. My father has been drinking a lot of water. And he's like, drinking water? What do you mean? Is he drunk? He's like, no, no, he's been drinking a lot of water. He needs help now. But what he was saying was that my father is drowning and you have to come and, and rescue him. But because of the, the language issues, that was difficult. Wow. Yeah. We see um, older patients in nursing homes being, well, not ignored, but misunderstood and maybe labeled non-compliant or aggressive or even with dementia or being delirious because they just can't understand what the nursing uh, staff is saying. So basic communication yeah. issues. That's know? right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, among other issues. Yeah. Okay, so my next question is about the involvement of non-Indigenous researchers mm. in Indigenous health research. And, yeah. of course, there's a lot of commentary about, about this and I think growing awareness of some of the issues. But I was just wondering from your perspective and from your experiences in inter-Indigenous research, what are some of the issues for, for non-Indigenous researchers who are involved in, in research um, with Indigenous researchers and mm. with research that is designed to benefit Indigenous communities? There's a possibility that there is a lot of distress around this topic in the communities. Uh, one of the reasons is that um, Aboriginal peoples around the world have been done research on for a very, very long time. So research for an Aboriginal person is often a dirty word. Um, it means relegating, you have no control basically. In my culture, uh, they talk about it as uh, being mosquitoes. Uh, people come in, they suck your blood out and then they leave. And um, That's very vivid imagery. Yeah. yeah. You know, I told you about uh, schooling, how residential schooling has had a big um, effect on people. And me, for example, I feel very successful in the Western world. I work here in nursing education and, and I managed to do a PhD and, and work with lovely colleagues. But whenever I go home, I have to be unschooled. And that's what my family are saying. You need to leave that world behind and then step back into reality. And I think uh, when it comes to uh, cross-cultural research teams, Anyone working in this space probably already do have a lot of knowledge around Aboriginal ways of thinking and, and, and knowledge. But it is really important to bear that in mind and keep that in mind throughout the research process. So where we have, I guess we have to, to think about a, a decolonized way of doing um, research. So all the, the damage that was done and all the systems we work in today, like academia, we have to just step out of that mind frame and hop into this, this other one and think about, okay, what can we do to sort of reverse some of some of those things. And that has to be in the planning of the projects, it has to be in the execution of the projects, in the methodologies and the way you do things. So it is really and important. Yeah. Interpretation of results Absolutely. and feeding back and learning from those projects and turning yeah. the results into policy and action. Yeah. We, we need that approach the whole way through. Mm. Absolutely. So if a non-Indigenous researcher wanted to learn more about Indigenous ways of knowing and researching and 
inter-indigenous ways of knowing and researching. Are there some resources you would recommend? I mean, there, there is a fair bit of information available, but I just wondered whether you have any sort of personal recommendations, maybe websites or books or social media accounts that you feel are particularly insightful or? Oh, it's uh, difficult for me being in Australia. I'm a visitor here as well, so that's a very difficult question to comment on. But my advice for someone who's really interested in, in maybe starting out in this area but want to learn more is to educate yourself in what's happening in today's world. So politics, uh, community-wise, immerse yourself in the community, immerse yourself with um, people living in the community and see you know, what's real for them. And I guess that's where my research is very community driven. I can't sit here as an academic within a university and decide now I'm going to research this or that. It has to come from the community and, and any research that I've been involved in, it, it, it is community led. And that would be, a, a, for example, um, nurses or, or Aboriginal cultural consultants that I've been working with, personal friends as well. And I guess the commonality with all the projects that I've been working on is that these ideas or these people that have spurred these research projects to occur, they have indeed followed the project through as well. So we're talking about building capacity, we're talking about true partnerships, um, and not just those mosquitoes coming in, taking what they need and moving on. Okay, so um, my next question is around inclusion and support for Indigenous uh, researchers. Mm. And you've mentioned a little bit about this academia <laughs> being set up uh, with certain traditions in mind and, and often not sympathetic to Indigenous ways of thinking and researching. You're an Indigenous person working in academia, working in a university setting. What are some of the ways that universities or research institutes, what are some of the things we could do to be more inclusive and supportive of Indigenous researchers? Mm. So you mentioned before what to do to educate yourself or to look up and one of those things is to bring in, for example, um, Aboriginal research agreements. Any project should be, should be doing that. And if we have administrative staff in the college working with researchers, they should be helping with those things as well. I think it's really important to know that research or research, like within academia, research is a very individual sort of practice in a way. Yes, we work in teams, but it's always about who wants to be first. You know, it's, it's about the achievement so you can move on. Working with Aboriginal research is completely different. No one is seen as an individual and everyone is seen in community, which is, I guess, really important for me to think if I'm working with someone, I might not always be first. I might have to do the right thing and then say to an Aboriginal colleague, for example, example, well, where are you going? How can I support you? How about you go first on this and I can help facilitate that? And being a community researcher, that's really how I see myself and my role. It is to facilitate that transition and to build that, um, I guess, uh, knowledge or, or capacity. Another thing that could be really handy is to realise that time is just looked at completely different. Some things take a lot of time. We talked about a little bit about trust before and 
and you know where we as in the western world we often rely on phone calls or um, emails and everything just happens in a team but it, it doesn't really work like that and you have to to put in the time to create those trustful partnerships and that is something that is ongoing for a very long time so it takes time to establish yeah, and exactly. uh, there's an expectation you maintain yeah. those relationships and nourish those relationships over time perhaps absolutely and also learning from each other and seeing when when you've done a few projects you you, you get your le- some learnings and say, oh, maybe we should have done that differently and next time we'll do that differently. And when it comes to funding, for example, it's very narrow what, what grant projects actually fund. Uh, whilst in projects where you're working with Aboriginal community, for example, you need to think about establishing those community relations. There might be extra costs involved in regards to community liaisons, um, extra research assistance that you might want to build, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so the costing is often just slashed, 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 but in Aboriginal research, you, wanna, you want a little bit more of that to facilitate those bonds to be built. I guess the relationships yeah okay thank Mm. you so this is our last uh, question and I mean there's been so many uh, lovely take-home messages from from today's chat but I wondered is there anything remaining if we could say one main take-home message for our researchers in the college in relation to indigenous health research and inter-indigenous health research I would just say that um, it's really important that everyone takes part and op- like be more open-minded, I guess. We have a way, um, it's, it's called two-eyed seeing, where we recognise that we do live in different world sets and we, we often come from different places and have different backgrounds. But within academia, it's so important that maybe we can use one eye to see academia and the Western sort of instances and systems and processes. But maybe we could use the other eye to see Aboriginal ways of knowledge and doing things. And perhaps if we put them together, we can see the best of both worlds and maybe start incorporating that um, both in work and private. So maybe some two-eyed seeing would be good. I really like that message. That's a lovely (laughs) message to finish our chat on. So thank you so much, Nina. I really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. I hope it's the beginning of many more chats. (laughs) Hope so. (laughs) 